uh, when brothers dwell in unity. However, let's be honest, disunity in the church is a real problem. It was a problem at the very beginning. It was a problem a thousand years ago, and it's a problem today. In fact, if I took a poll, how many of you here have been part of a church that split? Raise your hand. Now look around the room. Keep your hands raised and look around the room. I'd say probably more than half the people here have been in a church that split where a group of members left at some point uh, through, through disunity. Um, now, obviously, it's a problem. Now, Christian unity is a great thing. It's something that we should desire. It's something that we should seek after. But that's easy to say, but what does it really mean? What is Christian unity? For example... Are we not walking in unity if we disagree over what color of carpet to put in the nursery? Everybody knows you just ought to throw brown in there, right? That's, wouldn't that be... It just makes sense. Just take dark brown and put it in the nursery. Um, is, is unity even a reasonable goal? I think on a Sunday morning we average roughly about 450 people. Is it even... Think about that. Is it even reasonable to get 450 people in agreement? walking in, in unity? Is that something we should really even strive for? How important is unity in the church? Should we, should we strive for unity um, at the cost of everything else? Should it be our main goal? Should it be our primary goal in, in the church? Now, we're going to try to answer some of these questions today. And of course, the reason we're, we're talking about this and asking these questions is because that's what today's passage is, is all about. We kind of said last week, the church at Corinth is in an absolute mess. They've got problems. They've been, they've been together for about probably a year and a half or two years, and they're quarreling. They're fighting with one another. Uh, they, they're suing one another. They've got uh, sexual improprieties in the church. The whole church is just a, a, a complete mess. And Paul, of course, is, is writing this letter to address this. And right off the bat, last week we covered his greeting uh, took about nine verses, and right in, he immediately gets to the point. Hey, I'm hearing from Chloe's people that you guys are, are having problems. So let's see how Paul addresses uh, disunity. Now, the first thing he does is he, said, he tells us what's causing it. What is the source uh, of this disunity? And he tells us in verses 11 and 12. It says this, For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. And what I mean by that is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which is another name for Peter, or I follow Christ. So what has happened, evidently what's happened in the church is people have begun to polarize behind different men or behind different teachers. And so one group says, man, we, we follow Paul. Paul knows what's going on. He was here first. He came in here and did a bunch of signs and wonders. And another group said, no, Paul's kind of old hat. He's, he's done, moved on. Now we've got Apollo. And look at Apollos, man. That guy can preach. I've never heard an orator like him. And then you got another group said, no, I'm, we're all about Peter. Peter's a real leader. He's fiery. He's, he's confident. He's out there in front. And another group says, man, y'all are all wrong. We need to follow Christ. And, and this is really causing a lot of problems in the church. Now, here's the question I have this morning. Why do people do that? Why do people in organizations, by the way, it, it happens in your, in your, if you work for the state or you work for a private company, people do that in your job. They polarize behind people. It happens in the church. Why do people do that? Somebody tell me, why, why do people in a body like this line up and say, I'm following that guy? Why do they do that? Somebody? 
Okay, so they line up with people that has ideas like them. Um, uh, and, and a lot of times, by the way, what you'll see in a church is it's not necessarily lining up bes beside a teacher in this church, but they'll, a group will line up be behind a teacher in Kansas City or a teacher in Orlando or a teacher in Seattle. They'll say, man, we follow that guy. Right? Or, or am I wrong? Or, uh, of course they're right. One of the reasons we do this, you see, it's a basic fact of the human experience, if you think about it, that people want something to boast in, don't we? We, we want to be proud. We want to be connected to something bigger than we are. A, a lot of times what you see that always tickles me is, is people do this with sports teams. You know, they ride down the road with big uh, FSUs or big Gators or big Alabamas and, because they always, always want to associate with a winner. Is that true? People want to get with a winner. They want to be behind a winner because, you know, it makes you feel like a winner when your team is winning. It don't matter if you've never played ball in your life. You never even crossed a field, put on pads, or thrown a baseball, or hit a tennis, whatever. But the fact is, when you associate with something bigger than you are, it helps you feel good. It gives you a value of self-worth or, or self-importance. And that's what pride can do. Pride can can, can uh, kind of show itself in two ways. You can boast in yourself or you can directly, you can associate with somebody and boast. Well, I'm a Seminole. I'm a Gator. I'm with this teacher. I work for this company. I'm a member of this church. And it, and it, 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 it kind of pumps you up, makes you feel uh, a little more uh, self-worth. Again, it's no different for people in the church. Again, it's, it's human nature to want to have that sense of self-worth. Now, God's plan is what? God's plan is for us to boast in who? In Him. Let any man that boasts, boast in the Lord, Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians 1.31. Um, but instead of doing that, sometimes people in a church will line up behind men or women. Okay, that it's, It happens today, it happened uh, back then. And of course, the effect of this is when you have one group line up behind one person and another group lines up behind another person, they begin to bicker and argue. No, my, my guy's better than your guy, or my lady's better than your lady, or whatever the case may be. And it just it ends up causing a lot of problems. And that's exactly, by the way, what was happening in Corinth. Different groups had lined up uh, behind uh, different teachers to kind of get a boost to their own ego or their own pride. Now, it's, Paul knows what's going on, and it's his job to undermine this. It's his job to write and say, what you're doing is wrong. Okay, And that's exactly what he's going to do. Now, I, I want to show you something here. How does Paul do that? You're going to notice something about the Bible, and sometimes we get away from this. Um, I, I said today that my topic today is Christian unity. And what you'll find with a lot of teachers, and you'll not see me ever do this, and I'll just tell you, one of the things, if you come to this class very long, you'll leave and you'll hear, you'll, you may say something like, well, he sure don't tell a lot of stories. He doesn't give them, there's not a lot of, you know, not, I, I need, we need more stories. Paul never does that. Paul never, when he attacks a problem or tries to teach something, he never comes in and says, let me tell you all what happened and go off. No, he, he always feeds them truth. It's all, for Paul, it's always about truth, 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 truth. And then let God take that truth and handle the problem. You always watch that with Paul. And, that's, and by the way, when we come to this class and we study these, these verses and passages, it ain't, it's not about me at all. It really is not even about what I think. It's about what does Paul say. Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What does Paul say? That's what we're going to look at. 
I mean, if we have any problems at all in our church with pride and disunity, if they're going to be dealt with, they're going to, not going to be dealt with because Derek's an eloquent teacher. They're going to be dealt with because we understand the truth that's in the Word of God. So that's what's important. And that's exactly what Paul does. When Paul has a problem that he wants to deal with, he always deals with it with truth. So what Paul's going to do is he's going to urge on the Corinthians. He's going to give them five truths to undermine the fact that they're walking in disunity. And so I want to look at these five truths this morning. And he's going to do this through a set of rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question is just a question that kind of answers itself. It's, it's, you're not really asking a question um, it, to get an answer. The question is, is kind of asked to give the answer. Um, the first one is this. Paul says this in verse 13. He says, is Christ divided? Now that's a rhetorical question because obviously the answer to that is what? No, of course Christ is not divided. Now, the answer is obviously no, but, here's the, but why is that even relevant to unity? Why would even Paul say, well, is, is Christ divided? What's, what's, the, what's, your, what's your point, Paul? Well, I think there's a couple reasons he would say this. One is, who is the body of Christ? We are. Th- does it make any sense at all for us to be divided if we are the body of Christ? By the way, does it make any sense for the fingers on the right hand to boast that they're controlled by the right wrist and the fingers on the left hand to boast that they're controlled by the left wrist? Does that make any sense at all? That's exactly what they're doing. He's saying Christ is not divided. The body of Christ should not be divided. By the way, cut off the head and the rest of the body does what? It's useless. Well, who's the head? Jesus. Paul says Christ is the head. We're the body. We owe everything to Him. And so Paul wants them to see again, look guys, you are the body of Christ. Christ is not divided, and you shouldn't, be, you shouldn't be either. The other reason to say that it's relevant that Christ is not divided is the fact that when you have Christ, you don't have some of Him. You have all of Him, Right? If you're a Christian, the Bible tells us very clearly that you have all of Christ. And by the way, if you have Christ, it goes on to tell us you have everything. Everything is your inheritance. Um, Again, Christ is not divided. If you have Him, you have all of Him. And to have Christ is to have all things. Look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, 21 through 23. Paul says, So let no one boast of men, for all things are whose? Yours. And whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. Paul said, this is foolish. Why would you line up for a little... Why would you come over here and stake out a little piece of property and say, this is mine when you own the whole world? It makes no sense what you're doing. When a Christian does that, when a Christian lines up behind a a preacher to get or a teacher to kind of get there value and their self-importance, what it shows you is they don't, first of all, they don't really understand who they are in Christ, and they don't understand what their inheritance is. They don't really understand who they are in Jesus Christ. Put it this way, does a man who owns an entire city brag that he owns one house? Does a man who owns an entire country brag that one farm is bigger than another? Of course not. That's what Paul's saying. Everything is yours. The whole world is your inheritance. Christ is your inheritance. Why would you align yourself with one teacher and say, this, this is what gives me my value and my self-worth? 
obviously that, uh, that makes no sense. Number two, the truth that he gives is this, and that is he points them to who was crucified for you. You know, was Paul crucified for you? No. Was Apollos crucified for you? No. Was Peter crucified for you? No. Obviously, the, the, the answer there is Christ and Christ alone. Now, by the way, we've done a lot of over... As I mentioned last week, we've been studying books of the Bible uh, in, in, our, in our, our Bible study class since 2009. And, and we've gone through the book of Ephesians. We've gone through the book of Galatians and... Uh, now we're going, and we've gone through the book of Romans, which are all Paul's books. And Paul is a very, very intelligent guy, very smart, trained very well, a good speaker. Um, but not only that, keep in mind, not only is he smart, he's also inspired by the Holy Spirit. So when you read what he's writing, every word he writes matters. Every, he, he's put a lot of thought into what he says. And watch what he does here. He says, is Paul crucified for you? Notice he doesn't say, was Apollos crucified for you? Was Peter crucified for you? He, no, what, he doesn't attack them at all. In fact, he goes right to himself. He targets himself. He says, was I crucified for you? You see, what he wants to do right off the bat is undermine himself as grounds for boasting. The fact is, what he wants them, he wants them to understand, look, look I wasn't crucified for you. And, and, in, and in relation to that, he's saying, Apollos wasn't crucified for you. Peter wasn't crucified for you. Christ was, and, and Christ alone. Um, when it comes to boasting about someone, if we're going to align ourselves on someone's coattails, can I tell you, let it be Jesus. Let it be Jesus. We said it last week. Um, one of the problems that we have in churches today is, is we get disappointed in people. Well, hello, <laughs> Welcome to the world. You're going to be disappointed in people. And by the way, people are going to be disappointed in you. Because we're not perfect. We're not ideal. But there is one man who is. There is one man who will never, ever, ever let you down. And that is Jesus Christ. If you're going to line up behind somebody, you're going to boast about being attached to somebody, let that man be Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what Paul is saying right here. Um, in fact, by the way, compared to what Christ has done in dying for us, the talents of a teacher is nothing. You understand that? Compared to what Jesus did for us, the, the talents of any man or woman, I don't care how eloquent they are, how powerful it is, it's nothing compared to what Jesus Christ has done for us. So the idea that we would cause division in the body by lining up behind one man or one woman, that makes, it, it's insane. It makes no sense um, whatsoever. And by the way, when people do that, what it tells us is they've lost sight of the value of an infinite worth of a, of a, of a crucified Savior. You've lost sight of Jesus when you line up behind men. Because you keep your eyes on Jesus, trust me, you, you can handle those other things. You can handle the disappointments. You can move on. Get your eyes off Him and you'll get overwhelmed. Um, with pride, you'll get overwhelmed with all the things that can happen uh, in a church. Number three, Paul says the third truth. He says, you were baptized into Christ's name. Look at that. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And again, what he wants to see here is who, who died for you? Jesus. Whose name were you baptized in? What's the answer? Jesus. In other words, it wasn't Paul. Now, Evidently, one of the things that's happening in this church is there were probably people in this church... Remember, Paul comes into Corinth, 
starts preaching, and, and some people get saved. So he's, he starts this church. And so probably what had happened is some of the people are saying, hey, we're special because we were the first converts under Paul's ministry. They've aligned themselves with Paul because they said we were here first. We're the founders of this place. This place was built on us. You know, y'all need to listen to us because we're, we're somehow or another special. So Paul reminds them of something that he only baptized a few of them. Look what Paul says in 14 through 15. Now this is really pretty interesting. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anybody else. By the way, what he's saying here is I can't remember. I've been to this place and this place and that place and preached to them and, and it all starts running together. I don't remember if I baptized more. or That's what he's saying there, which, which obviously makes sense. Now this does bring up a question. Does it kind of surprise you that Paul would say Christ did not send me to baptize? That surprises me a little bit, by the way, because Jesus, when he stood on the shore of Galilee before he ascended into heaven, said this, go, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But Paul says he didn't send me to baptize. So that, little, that surprises me a little bit. I wonder, you know, you might ask yourself, does he have a problem with baptism? Was in some way he against baptism? Well, the answer to that is obviously no. If you go look at Paul's letters, he teaches baptism in all of his epistles. Uh, Romans 6, 3, Do you not know that all who, of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Colossians 2, 12, Having been buried with him in baptism. If you go, there are numerous scriptures where Paul teaches baptism. Paul himself was baptized. Acts 9, 18, Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight, then he rose and was baptized. Uh, his converts were always baptized. For example, Acts 16, Paul goes down to the riverside to preach. There's a, a lady there, the uh, name of Lydia, who was a, a seller of purple from Thyatira, and it says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after that she was what? Baptized. You see this over and over and over again. But could it be that there was something different about the church at Corinth. Maybe for some reason, when Paul went to Corinth, he didn't baptize. Well, again, that's not the case. If you look at Acts 18.8, it says, Many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were, what? Baptized. So we know they were baptized. So Corinth wasn't any different from any of the other places that Paul went to. The interesting thing is, if you go back and read Acts, and you read through it, you never in Acts hear... Uh, the author of Acts is a man named Luke. You never hear Luke say that Paul baptized. There were people being baptized left and right, but you never hear him say Paul baptized. So evidently what he did is when people got saved and baptism went on, for the most part he allowed Timothy or Silas or, or Barnabas or Luke or one of the people that was with him to actually do the immersing in water. Now why would Paul do that? Why would Paul kind of go out of his way not to baptize people? Let somebody else do it. Anybody? Well, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Look what he says, and he tells us, by the way, in verse 15. He said, I did that so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. He, he specifically went out of his way not to baptize people because he had this idea. Remember, in the early church, who was the man? Paul was the man. 
right? I mean, Paul, when, when, if you remember the early church, Paul had the, he had ultimate authority. He was an apostle. He had seen the risen Christ. He had been given his apostleship by the risen Christ. He was, he was special, okay? Paul says he, he went into the third, he went into heaven and saw things he, he couldn't even talk about. I mean, this was the guy, right? So if you were, you, you, can you imagine we're in a room and, I mean, let's face it, we got baptism what, next Sunday? And I'm sure Pastor Henry, let's just say if Billy Graham wasn't 117 years old, he could still walk in this room. And he walks in the room. Do you imagine the people might want to be baptized? If he said, if Pastor Henry said, Brother Billy, would you like to baptize? What would you say if you were being baptized? Well, yeah. I mean, who wouldn't want to say, I was baptized by Billy Graham? But you see, that's a, that could be a point of what? That could become pride throughout their life. I was baptized by Billy Graham. I was baptized by Paul. Paul says, I'm not going to let that happen. Specifically would go out of his way not to do that because he, he, he was worried that he would be idolized and that people would become proud of being uh, Paul's convert. By the, word, by the way, was that worry well-founded? Absolutely it was. That's exactly what we saw in the church at Corinth, that people were starting to do that. You know, if you go back and read Paul's letters throughout his ministry, he tried extremely hard to never deflect from the gospel of Jesus Christ. He would go into a place and start a church, and even though he had the right to take their money, he tells us, don't, don't let the ox that, that tread, you know, don't muzzle the ox that treads out the corn, right? If, if you're teaching someone, if you're serving as an apostle of a church or a leader of a church, you have the right for the, to partake of their goods. He says that. But yet he would go into a town and go work as a tent maker just so people, there was nothing that could be said against the gospel. He would go out of his way to keep the focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what he did is he left, evidently he left almost all the baptizing to his associates in order not to direct any attention away, or, or to direct attention away from himself and to Jesus Christ. And of course it seems that his worries were well placed because that's exactly what's happening in, in Corinth. By the way, the issue is never who baptizes you, right? doesn't matter if it's your dad or if it's Pastor Henry or, or, or one of the elders or a friend. doesn't matter. What matters is the name you're being baptized into, right? That's what Paul, whose name were you baptized in, Paul says. Okay, the idea is you. And by the way, isn't this funny? The, the whole meaning of baptism is death to self and life to God, right? What a travesty is to use your baptism as a point of pride in yourself. Or pride in a man. That makes that's 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 an extreme irony there, is it not? Um, because that's the opposite of what baptism means. Number four, and we'll get we'll move a little quicker here. Uh, he tells us gospel teachers do not rely on eloquence. Look what he says in verse seventeen: For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now it. it Paul, up to now, has talked about himself. You know, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in Paul's name? This is the first time it looks like he's probably talking about Apollos. Uh, Acts 18.24 tells us a little bit about a man named Apollos. It says this, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a what? Eloquent man. Man, this guy could speak. I mean, he had 
um, uh, he had a um, he had a voice that when he spoke, man, people just man listen to that guy. And he was very eloquent. He knew all the big Greek words back then. He'd use these big Greek words. People were sitting there in the Greek dictionary trying to figure out, you know, what he was saying. Everybody was just enamored with this guy. And so they thought, well, because he's eloquent, he must have more power. He must know more about Jesus. Um, this is the first time Paul says, kind of, I don't know if he's necessarily, not necessarily taking a shot at Apollos. He's just saying, look, guys, it's not, that's not what it's about whatsoever. When I came to you, I didn't come with, with eloquent words I, because I didn't want to deflect uh, uh, from the gospel of Christ. Um, you, you can kind of see what's going on here in the church now. You've got the Paul party. People lined up behind Paul. Man, we, we were here first. We were some of the first converts. We were saved under Paul's ministry. But Paul wasn't the best speaker. Um, he, he had some kind of eye condition. Uh, I've heard a couple people say that the, the condition he had, he might even cause his eyes to have be real infected and have pus. Can you imagine a guy shows up preaching the gospel and he's got pus running out of his eyes? I mean, you're not really going to say, let me go find another guy to preach the gospel, right? Because I don't want to watch that guy. Uh, but some people lined up behind him. But here comes Apollos, and man, he's, he's the real deal. He looks like a preacher. He acts like a preacher. He talks like a preacher. And he is a, he's a great man. He's a great preacher. And some people line up behind him. They say, you know, Paul's, Paul's old hat. Yeah, he was here first, but this is the guy. And then some are doing that with, with Peter um, as well. So you can kind of see probably the two main parties are, that are breaking up here are Paul um, and Apollos. And Paul responds by saying that, ele- now listen to this, eloquence can nullify the cross. By the way, there is absolutely nothing wrong with being an eloquent speaker. Everybody understand that. That's fine. I do my best. Pastor Henry does his best. When we get up to speak, we want to be eloquent. Right? I mean, it, it's nice to be able to listen to somebody that, that, that speaks clearly and, and, and gets their point across clearly. But if you rely on that at, at expense of the gospel, that's when you've made the mistake. Paul's saying don't rely on telling good stories. Don't rely on looking good. Don't rely on using big words. Make sure you stay on point and give the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what matters. If you can do that and be eloquent, that's awesome. But don't rely on on eloquence. Um, The fact is, some people are enamored by oratorical strengths. Others are enamored by miraculous signs. But the truly born again, a man or woman that's truly born again, when a preacher gets up here and preaches, you'll see through all that and you'll see to his message. Is he preaching self-denial? Is he, is he exalting Jesus Christ? You'll see through all that. You want to say, who is he in his heart? Who is he exalting in, in, his, um, in his message? By the way, we would not nearly be so prone to disunity if we cared less for the incidentals of leadership and, and looked through how the person dresses, how they speak, how they talk. If we looked through all that, to see, again, are they preaching crucifixion to self and a genuine exaltation of Christ? If we would look through that, um, we'd all be on the same page, would we, would we not? Um, the fifth one, real quickly, this is actually not in today's... Remember, this is a letter, so you can't just take these verses and separate them from the rest of the letter. Paul's going to be talking about this subject throughout his letter. When he gets to uh, chapter 3, he says this, For when one says, I follow Paul... And another I follow, Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? 
servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. What Paul's bringing them back to here is at the end of the day, it's not about Apollos, it's not about Paul, it's not about Peter, it's about Jesus Christ. And by the way, notice what it says uh, in verse um, 5. What is Paul, what is Apollos? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. In other words, the Lord assigned you, Apollos, you have these gifts. You're going to go to this church at this time. Paul, I'm going to give you these gifts. You're going to go to this. In other words, whatever you've got, it's a gift. You've been given it. You've been assigned that by God. Right? Don't get all, you know, go worked up and proud of what you got because it's a gift from God. At the end of the day, you may water, you may, you may plant, you may do certain things, but if, if fruit comes in somebody's life, it's for one reason and one reason only, and that's because God is, is given the increase. He gets all the credit. He gets all the, the glory. Now, those are the truths that Paul kind of puts out there to undermine disunity in the church. Now, let's turn around and flip it over. What does unity look like? Okay, this, he, this is why he's saying you shouldn't have disunity. You should focus on Christ. What does unity look like? He tells us in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Um, that first one, he says, I appeal to you that you all agree. Okay? Now that word agree, if you go look in the Greek, it literally means to say the same thing. So he's, he's saying, I'm appeal to you that y'all say the same thing. What he's saying here is I don't want you saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter. What does he want them to say? I belong to Jesus. That's what he's appealing. I make the same appeal today that at River of Life, we all say the same thing. We belong to Christ. We belong to Jesus. We don't line up behind people or teachers or different. We belong to... Listen, if we all acknowledge the same leader, we can all say the same thing. We can all walk in step to one another, right? I mean, that's what Paul is saying. That's literally what that means. Say the same thing. Don't say you belong to different people. Say you belong to Christ. Look what he says now. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree there be no divisions. That the word divisions... In the Greek is the word schemata. It means schisms. It's, it's the English word we get schizophrenic. Okay, everybody knows what a schizophrenic is. Somebody's got split personalities or uh, that, that means a split or a division. He says, I plead that there be no splits. There be no divisions uh, among you. Now, this is really interesting. What does he mean by that? Again, can, can half of us want green carpet and half of us want brown carpet? Is that a split? or a division, what's he, what's he talking about when he says that? Well, let's, let, he actually uses this word two more times in the letter. It's a very specific word that he uses. And it spread, it, it, these other uses will give us a little bit of, of light on this. The, in chapter 11, he's going to use this word again. I want you to watch, this is a really interesting scripture. Watch what it says. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions, there's that word schemata again, among you. And I believe it in part. Now watch what he says. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. Now that is a really interesting scripture. You see what he said? He says, I hear that there's splits among you and I believe it 
Because there must be splits among you in order that those of you that are real Christians can be recognized. Now, we're going to cover that in chapter 11. What is it about a faction or a split or a division that makes real Christians rise to the top? There's something about when factions occur, real Christians come to the top. Real Christians get known. And we'll cover that in chapter 11. What I want you to see for now, Paul says in a church, okay, in any body, Paul expects some disunity because he understands that not everyone in the building is a genuine Christian. Everybody see that? That's what he's saying. Sure there's going to be. How, how can you not have disunity when that person is a real Christian and that person is not? That person has the Spirit of God. That person does not. That person understands spiritual things. That person does not. Of course you're going to have some disunity. That's exactly what he's saying. By the way, it's just reality. And, and anything else would be just, just wishful thinking. There will always be a, a, what I would call a necessary disunity in the visible church owing to the reality of unbelief and false believers. Okay, there's always, you come into a church, you have a body of, of, of people, there's 450. Not everybody's a true Christian. Not everybody's really born again. There's always going to be some in the church that are not genuine. And Paul says when you have that, there will be some uh, disunity. Uh, by the way, that is never, so I asked the question early, earlier, should we make unity our main priority in the church? Absolutely not. In fact, the main priority in the church is, and Pastor Henry said it beautifully last Sunday, it's truth. Our job is to uphold truth. Y'all remember what he, the scripture he used last? He said, the church is the buttress. Y'all know what a buttress is? It says it's a pillar and a buttress. If you ever see a wall, this is a buttress. You ever watch somebody frame a house? They'll stand a wall up and they'll take a two-before. Everybody, are they buttress? That's what the church is to the truth. You hold up the truth. You remove the church and the truth falls down. The church is the buttress, the pillar. It upholds the truth. That's our job. Martin Luther said it, uh, Pastor Henry quoted it last week, unity where possible, truth at all costs. Truth is our, is our, because Paul said, unity can't be your main goal because there will always be some disunity because of, of non-genuine believers. Look what he told Timothy. He wrote a letter to Timothy. Um, he said this, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. You see what he's saying there? When, when there's disunity, Timothy, you correct your opponents with gentleness. Correct them with the truth. Don't just give up and say, okay, let's just unify. No, he said, correct them. Um, God may perhaps, perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the, of the truth. Um, there's one more place where Paul uses the word, 1 Corinthians 12, 24 to 25. It says, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there be no division, there's that word schemata again, in the body, but that members may have the same care for one another. Now I want you to notice what that says. What in this verse, what is the opposite of division? It's unity, but what is it? What's the what's the def, what's how's he defining unity? Caring for one another. See what he says? There be no division, but that members may have the same care for one another. 
That's, that's his definition in this verse of what unity is. Well, we love one another. We care for one another. We bear one another's burdens. That's the opposite of, of being uh, divided. So the unity expressed there is the oneness of concern and care. Let's go back to verse 10, and we'll close here very quickly. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Uh, that Greek word there for united means to be mended. It's, it's used... Uh, do you remember uh, there's a, somewhere in the book of John, I believe, where uh, it, uh, Jesus comes up and they're mending their nets? Do you remember that? that? That word for mending is the same Greek word being used here. It's the idea of you got a net with a hole in it, you tie it back up, you mend it, you close up the hole. That's what he wants us to be. He says, I want you to be united. Now, how does that happen? Notice he says, the same mind and the same judgment. Now, what does this imply about unity? The best, here's the best example of unity I can give you. This is a Paul writing in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. And he says this. I won't read the all 16, but I'll read it to you. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, because there's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's a, that's a unity of heart. Everybody see that? Bearing to, with one another, bearing one another's burdens, caring for one another, loving one another. But now watch what he says in the second part. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The other side of that, one side of unity is a heart unity, where we're, 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 we're united in heart and care for one another. The other side of that is where we are united in doctrine. That's what he's saying. Till we come to the unity of the knowledge of God. The unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. So we're not, carried, we're not knocked around like ships being from one doctrine to the next, from one bad teaching to the next. We're not like that anymore. So that's both sides of unity. A heart unity and a knowledge unity or a truth or doctrine unity. Do we all have to agree on the color of the carpet or the type of the music or whether to buy a new sound system? Absolutely not. But there's no doubt that our unity needs to be grounded in a doctrinal unity of what views we have of God. It, 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 we cannot unify if you think God is, 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 is less than He is. We should all be coming to the fullness of the knowledge of, of God. I want to close with this. What should be our aim and expectation in the church? Okay, What should we aim at? What are, what are the prospects of unity on this side of heaven? Can we be truly unified at River of Life? What should we aim at? Um, and by the way, if we hit lower than our aim, what do we do about it? If we're not, we want perfect unity. If we don't hit it, then, then what should we do? I'll give you a, a few things here. Number one, we should always aim at full doctrinal unity. All right, now, 
not watch what I said there, not by coercion or by manipulation, but by reasonable explanation and defense of biblical truth. In other words, we don't get in here and beat somebody over the head with a stick and threaten to excommunicate them because they believe a little bit different than we do. Now, what we do is we get them into a Bible study and we explain biblical truths. And then we let God do the work. Look at what Paul says in Philippians 3.15. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. I love that. Paul says, I'm mature. I understand what this means. But if you don't, then let God deal with it. See, all Paul ever does is give truth, and then he gets out of the way and let God do the work. He, he knows, I can't convince anybody of the truth. God has to um, do that. That's what Paul, go look at his letters, teach and preach the truth. Teach and preach the truth. That's what we, if any of you were here Wednesday night, you heard Pastor Henry say that. We're going to teach and preach the truth, right? What happens around that, whether this church doubles or triples or where half the people leave, that's God's business. It's not, there's nothing we can do. Our calling is to teach and preach the, the truth. Number two, we should aim at heart unity, the interweaving of lives and hearts so that we feel with each other and care for each other. Galatians 6, 2, Paul says, Bear one another's burdens and you will fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. Listen, I've said this, I hate drama. I absolutely hate drama in my life, in my home. I don't want nothing to do with it. But can I tell you, when you get involved in other people's lives, guess what you get? Drama. You get drama. I hate drama. I don't want drama. But yet, there's something about being called to bear one another's burdens that you're, you, you have to step in sometimes. It's, it's not pretty. I remember I used to have this idea that, man, I'm just going gonna, gonna to disciple this guy, and I'm going to give him the truth, and five years from now, he's going to be another Billy Graham. And it wasn't, it wasn't even close to that. Pastor Henry hooked me up sometime, one time with somebody, and he said, look, I've, I've been dealing with this guy. I can't do it no more. <laughs> he said, I want you to do it. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to show Pastor Henry. Watch this. I'm going to do what he couldn't do. And I, about a year later, I walked in and said, what, what did you do to me? Why did you do that to me? You know, and he just laughed. Listen, it's, it's a, to be honest with you, sometimes getting involved in other people's lives is a nasty business. It's a nasty business. They got baggage you don't have. They've, they've been brought up in ways you weren't. But listen, bear one another's burdens and you fulfill the law of Christ. Jesus came down from heaven out of perfect union and love with the Father and he came down to this mess and he, we treated, he got involved in our baggage. He bore our burdens, did he not? Now, all he asks is that we do the same. That's what we have to aim at in this body. If this church is just a place we come to on Sunday morning and we get a little bit of Bible study and we get a little bit of, um, you know, a little bit of preaching and maybe we come back on Wednesday night and get a little word to get it, if that's all church, that's not church. If, if, if all you're doing, if you're just coming here for community and the sense of belonging, go to the Lions Club. Really. The church is about people, relationships, mentoring, discipling, getting involved in one another's lives. That's what we're called to do. That's what it's all about, right? Um, I, I, again, I don't. I, it's not easy. And, and and by the way, everything in me, I don't want it. But then that he just keeps calling me back over there. Do it, do it, do it. 
Okay, so that's number two we should aim at. Number three, we should expect in a church this size of 450 people, by the way, it wouldn't matter if we only had 60 people, you should always expect and not sweep under the rug some disunity in the visible church because there will always be non-genuine professors of faith in the assembly. Always. There always will be some people who are involved in the church that look pretty good, act pretty good, dress pretty good, but the fact is they're not genuine, and they will sow seeds of disunity. Um, again, remember what Paul said, correct your opponents with gentleness in the hope that they might repent. Okay? Don't gloss over your differences, but convince, rebuke, exhort in patience and, and teaching. Number four, the, dis, the, the main source of disunity is what? Pride. Well, we should, we should strive in every one of our lives to root out pride. Root it out and get rid of it. Number five, finally keep in mind that there will always be some disagreements, like color of carpet, the, how loud the music is, what type of music, you know, there, there's always going to be that kind of stuff. Um, th- these are what Paul would consider relatively minor points. He's saying don't, don't split over those things. That's, that's ridiculous. In fact, this is what he tells us, Romans 14, 1 through 6. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the other person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another. Another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes a day, observe it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eat it in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. In other words, you're always going to have issues in the church, like color of carpet. We should do this. We should meet at 10.30. No, we should meet at 10.15. No, this meeting should be... Those are just minor things. He says, listen, just deal with those. Move on. The main thing is keep our eyes on who? Keep our eyes on Jesus. We keep our eyes on him, remembering what he did for us. Those things like that, they are just, uh, they are just uh, minor. Okay, real quickly, and I'm done. I want to give everybody an update. Uh, if, you're gonna, if you're planning on staying in here and being with us um, over the next few months, um, there will be Sundays you can't be here. Uh, one of the things that Chuck is doing, uh, one of the reasons we're mic'd up is that he's recording this. Uh, they go ahead as soon as the service is over. They post them uh, to the website. So if you miss, you're traveling, you want to get called up, you can do this. Um, that doesn't show up. If you want to listen to it from the, listen from the website, go to the River of Life website. On the left is a, uh, a link that says Getting Started. Uh, if you click on that, it'll bring you to a page. Uh, there'll be a link there that says Here, Derek Gray. If you click on that, you can listen to today's. And by the way, Chuck, you said it'll be up probably by the time we leave church, right? It'll be up. So don't listen to it while Henry's preaching. That's not, what we're, that's not what we want you to do. By the way, if you have a smartphone, you can also hook up to a podcast. Uh, if you go to your podcast icon, click on it. Uh, in the lower right-hand corner is a search. Search for Derek. Uh, if you click on that, um, you'll see our lesson there. Just click on it and subscribe to it, and it'll add it to your smartphone as a podcast. So if you want to listen to uh, a week, I heard it, had a guy walk up a couple weeks ago and said he was in New York. And he wanted me to know he was in New York, and he, he 
he heard this on the podcast. So that's that's pretty cool. So anyway, if you if you, I just want to make sure you guys could uh, could get called up in that. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you.